Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Fame and money usually change you, especially if you get a lot of both. But the change doesn't always happen right away. Or even if it does, it may take people a while to catch up. So, you know, even if you go back 10 years, it's not like the guy is living a, a life of frugality and uh, a destitute existence. He has homes in New York, in Aspen, in L.A. Um, he has a personal jet. And yet, says Brad Stone, the senior executive editor of Global Technology at Bloomberg News, dazzling wealth is not necessarily what creative, hard-driving business types want to project. So what do you do? Well, rely on symbols to show how much you value a dollar. An old Honda minivan, for example, that your wife drives you to work in. Or desks that are super-duper cheap. They assembled the first desks by going to Home Depot and buying some doors and putting some kind of two by fours on for the legs. And even to this day, you walk into conference rooms and they're just those same desks pushed against each other. So again, they can afford the nice mahogany conference table, but these are symbols of frugality. Jeff Bezos had been deeply impacted by the story of Sam Walton, a retailer who decades before Bezos revolutionized retailing, changing the American landscape, and to many people's dismay, challenging boutiques, toy stores, and corner grocers across America. But Walton offered something that lots of Americans liked better, bargains and convenience, plus a homespun image that, in the case of Sam Walton, never strayed far from its Arkansas roots, and in the case of Jeff Bezos, an image that centered around a nerdy, settled guy who... He once said, never did anything sexier than the dishes. We're asked about work-life balance all the time. And my view is that's a debilitating phrase because it implies there's a strict trade-off. And the reality is if I'm happy at home, I come into the office with tremendous energy. And if I'm happy at work, I come home with tremendous energy. And so it actually is a circle. It's not a balance. I mean, he really integrated that into his public image and his biography. The fact that he was a family man, the fact of his romance with Mackenzie Bezos, the fact that they have four kids, how tight he is with his parents and his siblings. Not to say that any of that is disingenuous, but it really did in some ways sort of like, I think, magnified the surprise when they announced their divorce on Twitter and the whole situation with the National Enquirer ensued. That was Jeff Bezos, followed by Brad Stone, the author of the book Amazon Unbound, which he was writing when news came that Bezos's marriage to his wife of about 25 years, Mackenzie, had fallen apart. And his relationship with TV personality Lauren Sanchez was all over the tabloids. Bezos has rather publicly remade himself, and he has remade our world, in both ways we can clearly see and in ways that may surprise you. Stone says he called his book Amazon Unbound because as the company grew and gobbled up more and more, a strange thing seemed to be happening. As big companies get bigger, they tend to slow down. And Amazon seemed sort of free or unbound from the laws of this corporate gravity that it, as it was getting bigger, it was growing faster, it was expanding more quickly into other industries. And yeah, this idea of being unbound by the law of big numbers and the things that slow down big companies was what attracted me. And then it's funny because I was interviewing Amazon executives and they were using the word. I quote one saying, Jeff wanted us to be unbound in our thinking. 
Bezos stepped down as CEO of Amazon on July 5th, the richest man in the world, though that title can fluctuate from day to day. We're going to talk this hour about how he has invaded everything from retail to Hollywood and what his unfathomable success and wealth tells us about us. Brad Stone, who's been chronicling the rise of Amazon for years, has written strikingly that Bezos has, quote, a notable deficit of empathy. Indeed, a former executive at Amazon once told Stone, if you're not good, Jeff will chew you up and spit you out. And if you're good, he will jump on your back and ride you into the ground, which is a pretty unsparing assessment, though Stone insists it's not without nuance. And, you know, you look at the extraordinary kind of success of Amazon over the past 27 years when Bezos led the company, and you wonder how much of it would have happened if he had been a more empathetic leader. But let me let me try to be more precise about what I mean, because it, I'm not suggesting that he's a sort of bad guy. It's just that he's been very cognizant that he's sort of like a student of human nature and a student of business history. And the fact is, and it's sort of obvious to recognize, if you make your employees really wealthy, they might not be working as hard. Right, you know they're they're gonna um, they're gonna relax a little bit. And Amazon was a company in the very early days that was making its employees very wealthy. Or you know if you're hiring hundreds of thousands of people in your warehouses and they view it as careers, you know what's going to happen when unions come around and try to organize? Like we've got you know good history with that, and we know that tenured or entrenched employees are more likely to organize. And Jeff Bezos was very much opposed to Amazon being a union shop. So the lack hmm. of empathy were like these little mechanics of Amazon culture that were instituted to create high turnover, big goals for people to keep them moving very fast. He didn't want any, anyone to become comfortable. Well, and he has this obsession uh, with day one. I mean, it, it's, an, it's an obsession beyond what you would even think. He's calling all his buildings day one. The idea being like, it's always day one. It's yes, we work for this very rich, you know, company that's taken over everything, but but never settle it, never feel like, You've got things accomplished. It's day two. You can kind of, you know, take your foot off the accelerator a little bit. The best definition, I think, that he provided for day one is when he talked about day two at an employee meeting. He said day two is stasis, followed by relevance, followed by excruciating painful decline, followed by death. Not not to put too fine a point yeah. on it or anything. And by the way, I saw, I think I was in India at an Amazon uh, building reporting a story, and I saw that on the wall of a conference room. I'm like, that boy, is that hmm. a motivating, uh, inspirational quote there for your employees? But the key word in that quote was stasis. And Bezos thought, you know, he early on, he recognized that the internet is like the greatest engine of change in business history and technology is scrambling the business landscape every day. And unless you're leaning forward into that change and constantly reorganizing your company and inventing new things, you kind of get swallowed up by the wave. So stasis was the enemy. Standing still was the enemy. And that's why 27 years ago it was a bookstore. And today it's in the you know, infinite number of things. So can you give a sense of the scope of Amazon now? How much does it control? A lot of people think about Amazon in maybe one or two dimensions. They order some things, they're like Prime members, or they go to Whole Foods, or they watch a TV show or something. Can you just give a sense of the scope of it? 
Sure. It, it, first of all, I think of it as a, a shape with uh, many sides. So there's the retail business, which we all know. It's kind of like Amazon Classic Coke. <laughs> there's the enterprise <laughs> software business, which is the cloud business, Amazon Web Services. And then there's the enter. And, and by the way, all these pieces kind of interlock. So, you know, my right. shape metaphor is sort of going out the window now. But there's the entertainment business, which is the video and TV shows and the music service that is streamed online often free for Prime members. And then there's a devices business, and that's uh, you know Alexa and the Kindle. And all these things are together, and they all intersect, and the business units all have very opaque interlocking parts. For example, the retail business runs on the cloud business. Alexa's brains are in the cloud, you know, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But then I would just say that like all of these businesses are united by a common culture and operating philosophy. And together, the whole unit is kind of an experimentation engine that continues to try to do other things, get into healthcare or launch satellites. Well, and I think what's interesting, too, is Amazon Web Services, which is kind of one of the in some ways, least customer facing, uh, uh, an average person might have no idea what you're talking about. But they run the back end for so many companies. And what I thought was interesting was that if you think about Amazon's foray into Hollywood, one of their big competitors is Netflix. Who runs Netflix's back end? Who runs their computers? Amazon. So even their competitors they profit off of because Netflix doesn't have the bandwidth to run their own computers. I I just thought that was so interesting. And it's not just Netflix. It's Disney. Um, Elements of Apple use AWS as well as Google's cloud. There's a lot of this kind of cooperation competition in Silicon Valley, but Amazon's Mm -hmm. kind of mastered it. And we think of it, you know, Amazon buying MGM, competing, and in some cases falling behind Netflix and Disney and Apple. And yet, that's such a narrow way to think about it, because not only are they competing in the original programming space, but for a lot of people, they're getting to all this content uh, through their Fire TV stick that's stuck into their computer. Hmm. And then even beyond that, as you mentioned, all these services are using AWS. So Amazon alone is playing at almost every level of the Mm -hmm. ecosystem. Does that mean that a Disney or a Netflix... They tiptoe more around Amazon because they are their competitors, but also reliant on them. So there's a, a sort of like spectrum of how maybe enlightened or protective companies are. And in retail, we've seen Walmart and Target basically pull away from Amazon Web Services and tell all of their suppliers, if you want to do business with us, you can't do business with AWS. You're emboldening a competitor. In the entertainment field, I haven't gotten that sense. And Netflix is just the canonical example. Like early on, Reed Hastings said, it's not really not in our skill set to go and build these big data centers. We're going to use Amazon even if they're a competitor. And I think his comfort with it and the way in which Netflix continues to be a leader has given other streaming entertainment companies the comfort to know that they're not handing the keys to the kingdom if they use hmm. AWS. Um, Let's talk about the pandemic a bit. Um, It's almost hard to remember now, but early on, Amazon was under such tremendous pressure. There was such demand that they said, we're not going to, you know, maybe send your fancy high heels right away. We have to focus on like toilet paper and flour and whatever. What role do you think the pandemic played in the life of Amazon? Like when we look back in a few years, what will the pandemic that year plus have done? 
Mm. I mean, in some ways, I want to say it'll be viewed as in, somewhat inconsequential because I really think that Amazon would have gotten to this size and scale without the pandemic. The pandemic was an accelerant. So in terms of maybe the business growth, inconsequential, but in terms of the public image, which, Kara, we can both acknowledge, has turned to some extent against Amazon. Yeah. yeah, I think the pandemic played a role. I feel like maybe there was just something unseemly. Well, number one, something unseemly about a company and a leader thriving so much during a difficult time for everyone else. Mm -hmm. You know, that obviously was something they couldn't control. What they could control was the very real concerns that were raised by workers, by employees in Seattle, you know, just about putting their employees at risk. I mean, there was a certain amount of chaos in the early days of the pandemic, and arguably Amazon navigated through it better than a lot of companies. But, you know, the way in which they fired internal whistleblowers, not just warehouse workers who were agitating about safety precautions, but some of the organizers of the, the internal climate movement, um, and they fired them when they started talking about warehouse worker safety. I think it just struck a lot of people as a powerful company flexing its muscles. And I think both Bezos and Amazon took a considerable image hit, which I, I think we look back and we go, maybe that was a turning point. The nimble company an inventive company that we really celebrated during the pandemic, we started to view it maybe more as a, a monopolist that deserved regulatory and legislative attention. Um, do you think it's going to get that sort of attention? Certainly it has from people like um, Senator Elizabeth Warren from Massachusetts, but is Amazon going to get the kind of attention in a regulatory way that's going to change how it does business? Well, so the first part of the question, will it get the attention is, unabashedly yes. And we're seeing, you know, the FTC is now chaired by Amazon's biggest public critic, Lena Khan, who who made her name with a paper at the Yale Law Review criticizing Amazon and suggesting a, a revision of antitrust law. And then a lot of those bills that are being discussed in the House of Representatives will take aim at Amazon. So the attention is coming, but will it change the way it does business? On that, I'm, I'm less sanguine. I think that around the edges, there are examples of conduct that I think can and will be changed. For example, this whole controversy over whether Amazon managers who create private label products have access to the data of how third-party sellers are doing. And can they go and look for the best multivitamin that people are buying on the Amazon marketplace and then come out with the Amazon Basics or Amazon Essentials version of that? I see. Right. Amazon has said, we have a policy against that. And in my book and in other reporting, it's sort of evident that the jar of the cookie jar was open for a long time and they did it. So things like that, things like the most favored nation pricing stipulation where sellers are required to give Amazon the lowest price. I could see Amazon either retreating from that or being required to enter into like a consent decree and change their behavior. But in terms of, will the company be split up? Will the gavel fall on Amazon and and change its fortunes dramatically? I, we can talk more about that, but I don't see it. Okay. Okay. Interesting. I mean, uh, we have seen the District of Columbia say Amazon is using its monopolistic power. Um, as I mentioned, uh, Elizabeth Warren has talked about Amazon, particularly in the context of their effort to uh, get the movie powerhouse MGM. Um, I'm going to play a little clip of Congresswoman Lucy McBath. This is from the summer of 2020. And she's asking Jeff Bezos in a hearing about uh, being too big and essentially uh, using that power to hurt uh, small companies. 
One seller told us that, and I quote, Amazon continues to be the only show in town. No matter how angry sellers get, they have nowhere else to go. So are you saying that these people aren't being truthful when they say that Amazon is the only game in town? Yeah, Congresswoman, with great respect, I, I do disagree with that. I believe that there are a lot of uh, options. So, Bradston, when you uh, hear that kind of criticism, um, I mean, it sounds from, from what you said, like you think Jeff Bezos, that Amazon will probably effectively fight off efforts to, you know, dismantle the company. Right. So, you know, a couple of weeks ago, the FTC lost a major case against Facebook. And and it's instructive to just look really quickly at why. It was actually an Obama-appointed judge who threw the case back to the FTC on the grounds of market definition and said, you know, you've accused Facebook of being a monopoly, but you're not specifying what the market is. Facebook competes with TikTok, with Snapchat, with Google's YouTube. And I think that ultimately, even though the politics are very much aligned against the big tech companies and Amazon is a target, I think there's a market definition challenge that, Mm -hmm. you know, I haven't seen a great explanation for. You know, Bezos is completely ineloquent in that Mm -hmm. clip. And it may be one of the reasons why he doesn't want to be CEO anymore, Mm -hmm. right? Does he want to spend his time sitting in that chair? But... He's, he's not wrong. I mean, Amazon has maybe 40 to 50% of the e-commerce marketplace in the U.S., its biggest market, but a single-digit percentage of all retail. And you've got Facebook investing in e-commerce, Google investing in e-commerce, and a Canadian company called Shopify that's built a multi-billion dollar valuation um, over the past few years catering to the kind of sellers that the congressperson is mentioning there. So mm-hmm. it's the internet, right? And this is the problem with these cases. On the internet, competition is only a click away. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Brad Stone. He's the author of the book, Amazon Unbound. We are looking at the impact of Jeff Bezos, of Amazon on our lives. Coming up, Hollywood, A-list stars, and how Bezos himself has changed, which is probably not surprising when you earn hundreds of billions of dollars. If you want to grab this whole conversation or you want to share it, you can find Innovation Hub on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We're coming to you from PRX and GBH Radio. Be right back. Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In the almost 10 years I've done this show, it's rare that as we're about to finish the show, I've got to call the interviewee back. But I did that in 2013 with Brad Stone, so it sticks out. He'd written a book about Jeff Bezos and Amazon. The interview was done, and then it got kind of a stunning one-star review on Amazon. From Mackenzie Bezos, now Mackenzie Scott. And and not just that, Kara, uh, but it also got a one-star review from Andy Jassy, the new CEO of Amazon. And it got a one-star review from uh, the, the chief PR person at the time. Stone is a senior executive editor at Bloomberg News, and he's the author, most recently, of a new book called Amazon Unbound. And what was really going on there is that Bezos didn't like the book, and he was angry about a couple of things in it. And he had orchestrated a nice little counter PR campaign to try to throw an asterisk against the book. 
you know, ironically, it ended up probably boosting sales a little bit. Um, I have no recollection of our follow-up conversation. In in the moment, it was it was sort of traumatic. You know, it's like uh, he they're sort of vaguely hand waving about inaccuracies, but with a little bit of benefit of the time, I really think it was the family stuff in that book and and how I handled the pursuit of his biological father, who he had never known. And, you know, in, in retrospect, um, and I can't even say I was young back then because I wasn't. I was still I was in my 40s. So but like that w- turned out to be a very sensitive family matter. If you remember when I found the biological father, he didn't know that his son was Jeff Bezos. Stone says he probably could have handled the family situation more delicately. But what happened spoke to the deep connection between Bezos and his wife, who he met long before he founded Amazon, back when neither of them were famous. She had been there in the early days when they worked out of a garage, when Bezos seemed to be chasing after a long-shot dream. They had four kids. Then, in 2019, when they said their relationship was over, and indeed that they had been separated for a long time, you had to ask, did the tremendous success of Amazon and the piles of money that he earned, did it change Jeff Bezos? I mean, I guess my answer is how could it not change them, Mm -hmm. right? When you're Bezos and you've got these incredible resources and you employ hundreds of thousands of people across many different businesses, but even more than that, when attention arcs to you in every room that you enter, you know, when the media is reporting about your comings and goings, even before the divorce, he, he would be taking family trips and paparazzi would be following them. And then accompanying that fame and fortune, opportunities open. He would go to Sun Valley or Davos or, you know, hold these events. I I write a lot in in this book about a secret event that Amazon held called Campfire, which was in Santa Barbara. And which sounds amazing. I know. I never got my invite, unfortunately, (laughs) but but they would invite, you know, the directors and the actors and actresses and the writers that they wanted to do business with. And it was sort of a private TED style talk. And again, Bezos, center of attention, laughing louder than anyone, um, the MC of the event. I mean, I I try not to get into the psychologist's armchair in this book because I am not a psychologist, but I would just say, how could that not change you? I mean, in in a lot of ways, Bezos has been consistent over his career in terms of like his corporate values and long-term thinking, but certainly there's been a transformation that's happened right in front of our eyes. Mm -hmm. The spinely tech nerd is now in very good shape. And look, I think that my sense of it from 10,000 miles away was that he enjoyed these opportunities that were opening up to them, these social opportunities. And Mackenzie Scott did not as much. She's very private. So one of the things that he uh, has talked about, um, that Bezos has talked about, is that when he thought about opening an online bookstore in the beginning, it was not love of books, Uh, that motivated him. But it was like the raw math. It was the raw, you know, question of like, what is going to grow the fastest? And and we have a little clip of him talking about this back in 1998. So Amazon's just a few years old. And actually, this is a a great speech where he says to people in the audience, has anybody used Amazon.com? If you have, can you come up after the speech and just tell me what your consumer experience was like? I'd really like to hear about it. You know, you realize it's so small scale. He'll take anybody in any audience and, and give them you know, sort of an ear. Um, But let's hear why he chose books. 
The company was conceived in the spring of 1994. I came across a startling fact. Uh, in the spring of 94, web usage was growing at 2,300% a year. Now you have to keep in mind that human beings aren't good at understanding exponential growth. It's just not something we see in our everyday life. But things don't grow this fast outside of Petri dishes. It just doesn't happen. Um, and when I saw this, I said, okay, what's a business plan that might make sense in the context of that growth? I made a list of 20 different products that you might be able to sell online. I was looking for the first best product. Brad, what do you make of that? He's looking for the first best product. It feels so revealing. It, it really is. And it, it should have been more revealing than it was to the early employees, many of whom were like book-loving hippies, anti-capitalist, and who did get a very disillusioned when this thing started expanding in every direction. They literally thought they were a bookstore. But what Bezos is saying that even though he is a, a big reader and does love books, it was very transactional. Books just worked online. First of all, you could promise an infinite selection. Even if you didn't have the book, you could go find it and send it in the mail. A Barnes & Noble is going to have maximum 150,000 titles. Customers knew basically what they were getting, right? There's not a lot of variability between this copy or that copy. Um, and then there were two major distributors at the time, including Ingram. So books were very easy to source. So it was purely a strategic calculation and he's revealing there that the idea that Amazon started as a passion project is not correct. Uh, obviously, Jeff Bezos has just stepped down as CEO of Amazon, which isn't to say that he will no longer be involved in the company. How do you think that will change the company? Do you think people inside are worried? No, I don't think so. I think that in some ways, this transition has been happening for a long time. In fact, when he announced the CEO transition, I immediately thought, oh, my God, do I need to rewrite this book? And I was actually due to my publisher in a couple of weeks. And I realized, you know, in some ways, this is the story I've been telling. Bezos allowing his main deputies to run the biggest businesses of the company with a lot of autonomy and stepping away to do the fight with Donald Trump or work on Blue Origin, a space company, or gallivant around the world with Lauren Sanchez. So in mm -hmm. some ways, I think this was a formal passing of the torch, but that the transition's been happening for a long time. And Bezos says as executive chairman, he'll continue to work on new projects and products, and I think he will. And so I think we're still many years from him really leaving Amazon. But you know, the main change now is that Andy Jassy, who was running Amazon Web Services, now has formal leadership over the whole company. Hmm. Um, you got at this a little bit with um, his girlfriend, Lauren Sanchez, but uh, Bezos has clearly made a major foray into Hollywood and not just Hollywood, but I would say like Beverly Hills, right? Into kind of this A-list world of actors and agents and studio bosses. Um, how important do you think that world is to him now? I mean, I think it started out as being just very strategic. And, and here's how I think about it. You know, Amazon had a robust DVD business, and then that went away, and they had a robust video-on-demand business, and then Netflix undermined that with subscriptions, and then they added subscriptions into Prime, but then it was very expensive uh, to go buy TV shows and movies, so they started to make their own. 
And now Disney and Apple and Paramount and Warner Brothers are streaming movies and TV shows. And it's all about intellectual property. And so Amazon's buying MGM, right? And trying to get some IP like the James Bond movies to build on. So it's been very transactional. It's like breadcrumbs following to the purchase of MGM. But you're asking, is it just business? And I, and I think probably arguably it's not, right? Because, yeah, yeah. yeah at, at the end of every year, at least pre-pandemic, he was having an Amazon Hollywood party at his Beverly Hills home. I imagine they'll continue to do that. He loves going to the award shows. You hear about him always going to the parties. And look, that was not ever something Mackenzie Scott liked to do. But clearly mm -hmm. that is the world that Lauren Sanchez is extremely comfortable in. And I think they enjoy it, right? So, yeah, I think it, there were good business reasons to be in Hollywood for Amazon, but there are personal reasons for Bezos to lay down the largest sum ever for a home, personal home in California, right. and to really be part of this community in a way that he really hasn't been in Seattle. Um, you describe this kind of frenzied attempt by Bezos to break into the entertainment business. And there's this moment when he says, I want my Game of Thrones, which comes off as kind of tyrannical, like I am entitled to a hit. I don't really get this industry, but I am entitled to it. Uh, make it happen. I, it, it feels both striking and it's really also part and parcel of him trying to break into an industry that um, where he was surrounded by a lot of questionable people and questionable decisions. Right. And again, there's like there was an impulse and I looked at it to, you know, to attribute this somehow to ego or to, you know, his own personal tastes. But I, there were real strategic reasons and I'll try to explain. So in the first years of Amazon Studios, they, they had a strategy that started out. I think probably is the right one of niche programming, kind of stuff you couldn't find anywhere else. So transparent, the Jeffrey Tambor TV series or the Marvelous and Mrs. Maisel. But then what happened was the opportunity for Prime Video became so much larger. And Amazon is starting to expand a Prime Video into countries where it's, it doesn't even operate a retail site. And so suddenly he's looking at, okay, what is the tip of the spear? What is going to be globally appealing to mass audiences? And also at a time when Netflix is developing very mainstream fare, and he can see that Apple and Disney um, and other, other entertainment companies are recognizing, you know, the opportunity. And the, the problem, you know, one of the problems for his crew in, in Hollywood is that these things take years to develop. And so they went out and spent $500 million dollars for this Lord of the Rings series, which still hasn't come out. But I think the team there, the Amazon Studios team, was sort of still too committed to their niche, high-taste strategy. And they didn't change, and then they were sort of beset by a couple of Me Too situations, and it was an opportunity for Bezos to clean house. Hmm. Uh, a last break right here. We're going to be back with Brad Stone in just a minute. On our website, there's a lot more about how Amazon's foray into Hollywood resulted in success in failure, in scandal. That's at innovationhub.org. Coming up next, Bezos will butt heads with the White House, and it's not going to be pleasant. From PRX and GBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller. This is Innovation Hub. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. 
In 2010 and 2011, though it seemed crazy to lots of people who knew him, Jeff Bezos wanted Amazon to create a device you could talk to. Like, you could ask it a question, it could answer it with an actual voice. Bezos loved various Star Trek shows, and he took to calling this device that could sit in your living room the Star Trek computer. Computer, this is Lieutenant Commander Data. Please access all Starfleet command orders to starships, star bases, and colonies for the last six months. Working. Bezos was obsessive about developing the Amazon Echo and its assistant Alexa when many, many people did not think it could be done. But that was how Bezos rolled. He took control and often bent reality to his will, which didn't always work out. By 2016, the Echo was testing out the possibility of incorporating a video screen. And when Bezos asked the prototype to play clips, he often requested Stephen Colbert's takes on Donald Trump and then roared with laughter. In fact, the exchange touched the most sensitive spot for China's foreign policy. Well, no surprise, Donald Trump has a long history of sensitive spot touching. Bezos may have loved shows that ridiculed Donald Trump, but government policy and politics, that wasn't really Bezos' thing. His thing was more along the lines of creating a huge company that reshaped America and not incidentally, built a fortune for himself. But a relatively small purchase that Bezos had made with his own money in 2013, the Washington Post, it would become a big, big deal in the Trump era. He had bought the Post when it was in some economic distress. He felt like he could help. He did get involved on the business side, helping to turn the financials around. Plus, a friend of his, Don Graham, was looking to sell. Back then, in 2013, the Trump era was probably unfathomable to Bezos. Every hour we're getting calls from reporters on the Washington Post uh, asking ridiculous questions. And I will tell you, this is owned as a toy by Jeff Bezos, who controls Amazon. He, he bought this paper for practically nothing, and he's using that as a tool for political power against me and against other people. Donald Trump would, over and over, take to TV to criticize The Post and Bezos. Brad Stone, the author of Amazon Unbound and a senior executive editor at Bloomberg News, has chronicled the flip from Trump as little more than a laughing matter for Bezos to a serious headache. A headache that would result in Trump seeming to pressure the Pentagon to not give a $10 billion computing contract to Amazon because he didn't like Bezos. The story of Bezos and Trump is fascinating, right? You have this collision between a president who was full of grievances against the mainstream press and CEO who had bought the Post, as we said, to kind of revive it and then found all of this unintended baggage that came along with it in terms of casting Amazon at odds with the Trump administration. I think that history is probably going to come down on Bezos' side on this, right? I think Trump just had grievances against the Post for its excellent reporting, and, and then he sort of improperly cast that against Amazon. It's hard to make sense out of some of the grievances that Trump had. He believed that the post office had a improper relationship with Amazon. Right. That, that right. certainly wasn't true. Or that, yeah, Bezos used the Washington Post to lobby on his behalf. Look, I, I've studied this for a decade and never found any evidence that that is the case. If anything, the Post is tough on Amazon. And we know, and I know for a fact, that Bezos would never pick up the phone and try to guide the, the journalistic uh, mission or the reporting. 
I would be humiliated to interfere. Ooh. I would be so embarrassed. I would, I would turn bright red. It has nothing to do with, I don't even get so far, I just don't want to. For me, it would feel icky. It would feel gross. It would, feel, it would be one of those things when I'm 80 years old, I would be so unhappy with myself yeah. if I interfered. Why would I? Yeah. I want that paper to be independent. So, yeah, I think Trump was kind of barking up the wrong tree there. Let me touch on one more area in which uh, Bezos has had huge cultural influence, and that was uh, a couple of years back, there was the search for a second headquarters for Amazon. And you had, I remember covering it, you had cities and towns throwing themselves at the feet of Amazon. You know, here are some tax breaks. We will rename this road, this highway, this building, whatever, for you. You know, I mean, there was just a, a people were kind of walking all over each other to try to offer Amazon more than the next guy. What did you make of the kind of frenzy that surrounded Amazon saying, we're on the search for a place to go, make your best case to us? So I have a, a chapter on this, and I interweave the HQ2 process with the worsening political situation for Amazon in Seattle. And I, I feel hmm. like, yeah, they were, you know, they were running from Seattle in a respect. The city council had taken a really hard turn left. Amazon was being held responsible for ills like homelessness and gentrification and the rapid rise in real estate prices. And they thought, let's go find a city that wants us. And... They, you know, held this process. And, you know, it's funny, Amazon executives can be somewhat reclusive. They're completely absorbed with the internal mechanics of their company. And I think what they didn't understand is that in a lot of large metropolitan areas, the dynamic in Seattle was being repeated. And so they selected New York, where AOC had just been elected, and they kind of ran headlong into the same buzzsaw. And so, you know, they would never claim that HQ2 was a misstep. But, you know, the other thing that happened during the process was their market cap hit a trillion dollars. And so suddenly there was this big visible sign of Amazon's power and it began to look really sort of unseemly for the company to be asking all these localities for handouts. Well, it also was striking because you had a lot of cities saying, you know, we're not the usual suspects. We're not Seattle and San Francisco and Boston and New York. You know, think broader. Think about us. We'll do all these nice things for you. And then Amazon came back and was like, you know, we'd like the usual suspects. How about DC and New York? And and then of course, as you say, through the work of people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, at that point, New York, which has a lot going on itself, was just like, yeah, no, thanks. We don't really want it. But it just was so striking because so many places thought, great, let's spread this tech wealth around. And Amazon was like, yeah, we're not interested in that. In the, in the book, I actually I have a, a bunch of different memos from their internal deliberations. And I found that the, um, the actual HQ2 committee, their final recommendation was either Raleigh, Chicago, or Philadelphia. And okay. essentially, the S team, the Amazon leadership team, after all the work that they had done to visit the sites and to do the research, said, that's not where we want to go. And it was almost the personal whims of the senior leaders, Bezos and Jassy, and the feeling that um, they would have to grow bigger at the new place because things had gotten so bad in Seattle. Mm -hmm. But no, it's, I mean, to your point, it was, it says something about our current economic reality, you know, that all these cities kind of 
prostrated themselves before this big giant tech company for the chance to be considered. I think the optics of it were really bad. I want to talk about life inside Amazon for a minute. You talk to many, many hundreds of people who work and have worked there. And I just want to highlight one uh, woman. Um, uh, her name is Megan Wolf, and she worked on the first Amazon Prime Day. We get all these deals, right, in 2015. And she's like on the plane to Tokyo and London and Paris and music. And, and she says at one point, um, I felt like I was running a Ponzi scheme. Um, why does she feel that way? I mean, most specifically because Prime Day, what maybe some people don't realize is it's the brands and the, the sellers who are providing the discounts and Amazon's going to kind of wrangle them to do it, to get in line for Prime Day. And, um, you know, she was basically sort of offering this. They were marketing the day of big discounts before they had the discounts in hand. But the story of Megan Wolf is really an interesting one because she is part of this sort of not small club of conscientious objectors who, mm -hmm. you know, employees at Amazon who soured on the Amazon experience. And she ran Prime Day, the first one. She got criticized for how well it did, even though it was the biggest sales day in the company's history. She had a couple more jobs. And then she, she quit. She canceled her Prime membership and threw her Alexas in the trash. And it was part because, yeah, she felt like, Prime Day represented consumerism run amok, and partly because, you know, she thought that uh, relentless corporate culture hadn't been great for her. She didn't like who she had become, and partly because during the Bezos scandal, she kind of lost faith in him as a leader. Hmm. 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 Um, when you look ahead, one of the things that Bezos is going to embark on uh, is giving away his money. He is, I think, the richest person in the world, right? Uh, for for now. For now. Okay. Close to $200 billion in wealth, right? That's right. Huge amount of money. One of the things he said is he's going to give billions of dollars to trying to fight climate change. And one of the things that strikes me is, so you're saying you're a person who has spent the last dozens of years having people buy things that they probably don't really need and then that break at a certain point and they throw them out and probably can't be recycled. And I mean, you're pushing people to consume stuff and you're now gonna uh, think, how can we get out of this environmental mess? Aren't you kind of the person who partially got us into it? I should mention like fleets of planes and trucks and stuff also that get us the stuff. Yes, there there is definitely a rich irony there. You know, a couple of things. One, Bezos didn't invent consumerism, right? We were buying crap uh, before Amazon came around. Um, <laughs> but, but um, you know, I, I feel like on this, Kara, I, I want to be optimistic. I feel like if Bezos is going to commit a significant part of that fortune to something other than space, which I think the jury is out on the utility and practicality there, I'm glad that the world's richest guy and one of the greatest intellects says he's going to be devoting more of both to climate change. I feel like we we need him. So, you know, I'm I'm like I want to see him get it's called the Bezos Earth Fund, get personally involved, do it as an investor. You know, bring the same magical elixir that he brought not just to Amazon but to his career as a private investor. And mm -hmm. if you remember, he was one of the first investors in Google. So the guy does know mm -hmm. how to pick them to like finding technologies that are going to get us out of this mess. Um, I hope he's sincere with that and it's not just you know, a cover to check the philanthropic box as he goes to space and luxuriates on his uh, extravagant yacht. 
What do you make of the amount of money he has? Um, I mean, in some ways, it reminds me a little bit of the Waltons, who also are among the richest Americans and also have benefited off of our just love. I mean, we gave them that money. We went to Walmart. We order things from Amazon. Like, it's not a mystery why Jeff Bezos have mo- has money. Um, but what do you make of the amount of money that one person holds, which is a fifth of a trillion dollars? It's crazy. It's kind of a lot. But I, I, I also want to caveat... That in some ways, Bezos did this, the, if, if there can be a right way, hmm. because he's drawn an $80,000 a year salary, and he's never got more allotments of stock. So when we criticize executive compensation, we are not criticizing Jeff Bezos. He owned 40% of Amazon at its IPO. And because the company has grown like gangbusters since then, he now is a fortune worth $202 billion. It's, you know, he created his own success, and now he owns 12% of the company, which means that 88% of shareholders are out there enjoying the same, mm-hmm. you know, wealth uh, creation that he's enjoyed personally. That said, you know, when you have a, a workforce of some a million people who are making $15 an hour and struggling to make ends meet, you know, it's definitely a juxtaposition a contrast that we as a society probably need to consider. And look, the revelations around the tax paying from ProPublica recently and the the lengths that all these guys go to to lower their tax, it makes you so mad, particularly as you consider how much money you and your family are forking over. But that's not, you know, again, that's not a Bezos thing. That's the law, right? We need to do a better job of making sure that these wealthy individuals are paying their fair share of taxes. Um. When you um, think about the push recently to uh, unionize within Amazon, um, what do you think is going to happen there? There was a very closely watched vote. That union did not come together. Um, will it ultimately? The unions and the workers face you know, several decades worth of unfavorable history when it comes to the, the power of organized labor in the United States. And at Bessemer, you would think a set of circumstances that would be very favorable to, to, the, to the workers and the union. And that was in Alabama, right, where they had a vote, but it didn't work out. Yeah. The union lost two to one, and in part because all the tools that companies like Amazon have at their disposal to quietly flex their muscles in conversations with uh, workers inside the workplace. Hmm. It's also true that Amazon is bringing economic opportunity to a lot of parts of the country that don't have a lot of it. And, you know, if you're a worker there, you're probably wary of stirring the pot, particularly with a company that has a history of walking away from sites when there's union uh, activity. So, look, the the Teamsters recently said they were going to devote a whole new division and a lot of resources to organizing Amazon workers it's really interesting because Amazon doesn't actually employ its drivers. Its drivers basically work for independent companies who then work for Amazon. Huh. Okay. And so the company, like a lot of companies, has manipulated the law and organized itself in such a way that it doesn't, you know, it has a limited responsibility for the endline worker and it makes it very difficult for unions. So I don't, it's hard for me to see how the calculation we saw at Bessemer changes dramatically in the years ahead. Uh Finally, um, as we kind of start off talking about uh, Amazon is such a multi-pronged company and it's got its tentacles into so many places. 
But are there areas that it's itching to get into? Or do you think that it's planning to get into that? Like, we haven't seen this yet, but it's like the next shoe to drop. Yeah. Um, and and it's always, you always scratch your head and you go, really? Do you, do you really need this one additional thing? But, you know, the, the ones that are sort of happening in front of our eyes are supermarkets. Amazon's been a very small player in the world of supermarkets. And of course, it acquired Whole Foods Market in 2017, but it didn't do much with it. And now they're stamping out these Amazon Fresh supermarkets that, you know, is with a whole litany of uh, selection. So, you know, a Whole Foods isn't going to stock your uh, Cool Ranch Doritos, but Amazon will. And they're situated in such a way that they can also be delivery hubs. And they, they'll use technology like grocery carts or cameras in the ceiling so you don't have to wait in a checkout line. So that's the obvious one. I think we're going to see a major Amazon expansion in, in fresh food. In physical stores. Also, physical stores. Like physical stores. Yeah. Now that they've gotten rid of the physical stores so that you go online, exactly. they're into physical well, stores. Well, but there are certain categories of uh, sure. economic activity that really do happen mostly in physical stores. Supermarkets is one. The other one, Kara, is funny, is uh, Amazon opened a hair salon in London. A hair salon. Sure. Right. Soon my hair will be done by Amazon. Right. And and in part because they get to sell hair care products to the stylists and in part probably as showrooms for their devices. So I, I see a lot more in physical retail, but healthcare is another major avenue of expansion. They're opening clinics. They have a telehealth service. They've got devices that can measure different biometrics. And all this is feels like it's the weird spaghetti against the wall uh, phase of Amazon development. But I do think that's one area that they're looking at very closely. Brad Stone is the author of Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos and the Invention of a Global Empire. Thank you so much for coming back. Thank you, Kara. There's lots more on our website about a number of the topics that we've discussed, including the vote over whether or not to unionize in Bessemer, Alabama. In fact, of all U.S. companies currently, Amazon has the second highest number of employees. If you're wondering who's number one, it's still Walmart. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Solinger, and associate producer Sarah Leeson. We also had production help from Abby Bacini. From PRX and GPH, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. <laughs>